0: Book One, Chapter Seventeen of *The Age of Innocence*. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. *The Age of Innocence* by Edith Wharton. Book One, Chapter Seventeen. Your cousin, the Countess, called on Mother while you were away. Janey Archer announced to her brother on the evening of his return. The young man who was dining alone with his mother and sister glanced up in surprise and saw Mrs. Archer's gaze demurely bent on her plate. Mrs. Archer did not regard her seclusion from the world as a reason for being forgotten by it, and Newland guessed that she was slightly annoyed that he should be surprised by Madame Olenska's visit. "'She had on a black velvet polonaise with jet buttons and a tiny green monkey muff. I never saw her so stylishly dressed,' Janey continued. She came alone early on Sunday afternoon. Luckily the fire was lit in the drawing-room. She had one of those new card-cases. She said she wanted to know us because you'd been so good to her.' Newland laughed. "'Madam Olenska always takes that tone about her friends. She's very happy at being among her own people again.' "'Yes, so she told us,' said Mrs. Archer. "'I must say she seems thankful to be here.' "'I hope you liked her, mother.' Mrs. Archer drew her lips together. "'She certainly lays herself out to please, even when she is calling on an old lady.' "'Mother doesn't think her simple,' Janie interjected, her eyes screwed upon her brother's face. "'It's just my old-fashioned feeling. Dear May is my ideal,' said Mrs. Archer. "'Ah,' said her son, "'they're not alike.' Archer had left Saint Augustine charged with many messages for Old Mrs. Mingott, and a day or two after his return to town, he called on her. The old lady received him with unusual warmth. She was grateful to him for persuading the Countess Olenska to give up the idea of a divorce, and when he told her that he had deserted the office without leave and rushed down to Saint Augustine simply because he wanted to see May, she gave an adipose chuckle and patted his knee with her puffball hand. Ah ah so you kicked over the traces, did you? And I suppose Augusta and Welland pulled long faces and behaved as if the end of the world had come. But little May, she knew better I'll be bound. I hoped she did, but after all she wouldn't agree to what I'd gone down to ask for. Wouldn't she, indeed? And what was that? I wanted to get her to promise that we should be married in April. What's the use of our wasting another year?' mrs manson mingott screwed up her little mouth into a grimace of mimic prudery and twinkled at him through malicious lids ask mamma i suppose the usual story ah these mingotts all alike born in a rut and you can't root em out of it when i built this house you'd have thought i was moving to california nobody ever had built above fortieth street no says i nor above the battery either before christopher columbus discovered america no no not one of them wants to be different they're as scared of it as the smallpox ah my dear mr archer i thank my stars i'm nothing but a vulgar spicer but there's not one of my own children that takes after me but my little ellen she broke off still twinkling at him and asked with the casual irrelevance of old age now why in the world didn't you marry my little ellen archer laughed for one thing she wasn't there to be married "'No, to be sure. More's the pity. And now it's too late. Her life is finished.' She spoke with the cold-blooded complacency of the aged throwing earth into the grave of young hopes. The young man's heart grew chill, and he said hurriedly, "'Can't I persuade you to use your influence with the Wellands, Mrs. Mingott? I wasn't made for long engagements.' Old Catherine beamed on him approvingly. "'No, I can see that. You've got a quick eye.' When you were a little boy, I've no doubt you liked to be helped first. She threw back her head with a laugh that made her chins ripple like little waves. Ah, here's my Ellen now, she exclaimed, as the portieres parted behind her. Madame Olenska came forward with a smile. Her face looked vivid and happy, and she held out her hand gaily to Archer while she stooped to her grandmother's kiss. I was just saying to him, my dear, now why didn't you marry my little Ellen? "'Madame Olenska looked at Archer, still smiling. "'And what did he answer? "'Oh, my darling, I leave you to find that out. "'He's been down to Florida to see his sweetheart.' "'Yes, I know.' "'She still looked at him. "'I went to see your mother to ask where you'd gone. "'I sent a note that you never answered, "'and I was afraid you were ill.' "'He muttered something about leaving unexpectedly, "'in a great hurry, and having intended to write to her "'from St. Augustine.' "'And of course, once you were there, you never thought of me again.' She continued to beam on him with a gaiety that might have been a studied assumption of indifference. "'If she still needs me, she's determined not to let me see it,' he thought, stung by her manner. He wanted to thank her for having been to see his mother, but under the ancestress's malicious eye he felt himself tongue-tied and constrained.' Look at him, in such hot haste to get married that he took French leave and rushed down to implore the silly girl on his knees. That's something like a lover. That's the way handsome Bob Spicer carried off my poor mother, and then got tired of her before I was weaned, though they only had to wait eight months for me. But there you're not a Spicer, young man, luckily for you and May. It's only my poor Ellen that has kept any of their wicked blood. The rest of them are all model mingots.' cried the old lady scornfully. Archer was aware that Madame Olenska, who had seated herself at her grandmother's side, was still thoughtfully scrutinizing him. The gaiety had faded from her eyes, and she said with great gentleness, "'Surely, Granny, we can persuade them between us to do as he wishes?' Archer rose to go, and as his hand met Madame Olenska's he felt that she was waiting for him to make some allusion to her unanswered letter. "'When can I see you?' he asked as she walked with him to the door of the room. "'Whenever you like. But it must be soon if you want to see the little house again. I am moving next week.' A pang shot through him at the memory of his lamplit hours in the low-studded drawing-room. Few as they had been, they were thick with memories. "'Tomorrow evening?' she nodded. "'Tomorrow, yes. But early. I'm going out.' The next day was a Sunday, and if she were going out on a Sunday evening it could of course be only to Mrs. Lemuel Struthers. He felt a slight movement of annoyance, not so much at her going there, for he rather liked her going where she pleased in spite of the van der Luydens, but because it was the kind of house at which she was sure to meet Beaufort, where she must have known beforehand that she would meet him, and where she was probably going for that purpose. "'Very well. tomorrow evening,' he repeated inwardly resolved that he would not go early, and that by reaching her door late he would either prevent her from going to Mrs. Struthers, or else arrive after she had started, which, all things considered, would no doubt be the simplest solution. It was only half-past eight after all when he rang the bell under the wisteria, not as late as he had intended by half an hour, but a singular restlessness had driven him to her door. He reflected, however, that Mrs. Struthers' Sunday evenings were not like a ball and that her guests, as if to minimize their delinquency, usually went early. The one thing he had not counted on in entering Madame Olenska's hall was to find hats and overcoats there. Why had she bidden him to come early if she was having people to dine? On a closer inspection of the garments besides which Nastasia was laying his own, his resentment gave way to curiosity. The overcoats were, in fact, the very strangest he had ever seen under a polite roof and it took but a glance to assure himself that neither of them belonged to Julius Beaufort. One was a shaggy yellow ulster of reach-me-down cut, the other a very old and rusty cloak with a cape, something like what the French call a Macfarlane. This garment, which appeared to be made for a person of prodigious size, had evidently seen long and hard wear, and its greenish-black folds gave out a moist, sawdusty smell suggestive of prolonged sessions against bar-room walls. On it lay a ragged grey scarf and an odd felt hat of semi-clerical shape. Archer raised his eyebrows inquiringly at Nastasia, who raised hers in return with a fatalistic ja, as she threw open the drawing-room door. The young man saw at once that his hostess was not in the room. Then, with surprise, he discovered another lady standing by the fire— This lady, who was long, lean, and loosely put together, was clad in raiment intricately looped and fringed, with plaids and stripes and bands of plain colour disposed in a design to which the clue seemed missing. Her hair, which had tried to turn white, and only succeeded in fading, was surmounted by a Spanish comb and black lace scarf, and silk mittens, visibly darned, covered her rheumatic hands. Beside her, in a cloud of cigar smoke, stood the owners of the two overcoats both in morning clothes that they had evidently not taken off since morning. In one of the two, Archer, to his surprise, recognized Ned Winsett. The other, and older, who was unknown to him, and whose gigantic frame declared him to be the wearer of the Macfarlane, had a feebly leonine head with crumpled grey hair, and moved his arms with large, pawing gestures, as though he were distributing lay blessings to a kneeling multitude. These three persons stood together on the hearthrug, their eyes fixed on an extraordinarily large bouquet of crimson roses, with a knot of purple pansies at their base, that lay on the sofa where Madame Olenska usually sat. "'What they must have cost at this season, though of course it's the sentiment one cares about,' the lady was saying in a sighing staccato as Archer came in. The three turned with surprise at his appearance, and the lady, advancing, held out her hand. "'Dear Mr. Archer, almost my cousin Newland,' she said. "'I am the Marchioness Manson.' Archer bowed, and she continued. "'My Ellen has taken me in for a few days. I came from Cuba, where I have been spending the winter with my Spanish friends, such delightful distinguished people, the highest nobility of old Castile, how I wish you could know them. But I was called away by our dear great friend here, Dr. Carver. You don't know Dr. Agathon Carver, founder of the Valley of Love community?' Dr. Carver inclined his leonine head, and the Marchioness continued, "'Ah, New York, New York, how little the life of the spirit has reached it! But I see you do know Mr. Winsett.' "'Oh, yes, I reached him some time ago, but not by that route,' Winsett said with his dry smile. The Marchioness shook her head reprovingly. "'How do you know, Mr. Winsett? The spirit bloweth where it listeth.' "'List! Oh, list!' interjected Dr. Carver in a stentorian murmur. "'But do sit down, Mr. Archer. We four have been having a delightful little dinner together, and my child has gone up to dress. She expects you. She will be down in a moment. We were just admiring these marvellous flowers which will surprise her when she reappears.' Winsett remained on his feet. "'I am afraid I must be off. Please tell Madame Olenska that we shall all feel lost when she abandons our street. This house has been an oasis.' "'Ah, but she won't abandon you. Poetry and art are the breath of life to her. It is poetry you write, Mr. Winsett?' "'Well, no, but I sometimes read it,' said Winsett, including the group in a general nod and slipping out of the room. "'A caustic spirit. Un peu sauvage, but so witty. Dr. Carver, you do think him witty?' "'I never think of wit,' said Dr. Carver severely.' "'Ah! Oh, oh, you never think of wit! How merciless he is to us weak mortals, Mr. Archer! But he lives only in the life of the spirit, and to-night he is mentally preparing the lecture he is to deliver presently at Mrs. Blenker's. Dr. Carver, would there be time before you start for the Blenker's to explain to Mr. Archer your illuminating discovery of the direct contact? Oh, but no, I see it is nearly nine o'clock, and we have no right to detain you while so many are waiting for your message.' Dr. Carver looked slightly disappointed at this conclusion, but having compared his ponderous gold timepiece with Madame Olenska's little travelling-clock, he reluctantly gathered up his mighty limbs for departure. "'I shall see you later, dear friend,' he suggested to the Marchioness, who replied with a smile. "'As soon as Ellen's carriage comes I will join you. I do hope the lecture won't have begun.' Dr. Carver looked thoughtfully at Archer perhaps if this young gentleman is interested in my experiences mrs blenker might allow you to bring him with you oh dear friend if it were possible i am sure she would be too happy but i fear my ellen counts on mr archer herself that said dr carver is unfortunate but here is my card he handed it to archer who read on it in gothic characters agathon carver the valley of love Kidd in me, New York. Dr. Carver bowed himself out, and Mrs. Manson, with a sigh that might have been either of regret or relief, again waved Archer to a seat. "'Ellen will be down in a moment, and before she comes I am so glad of this quiet moment with you.' Archer murmured his pleasure at their meeting, and the Marchioness continued in her low, sighing accents. "'I know everything, dear Mr. Archer. My child has told me all you have done for her.' Your wise advice, your courageous firmness! Thank heaven it was not too late! The young man listened with considerable embarrassment. Was there any one, he wondered, to whom Madame Olenska had not proclaimed his intervention in her private affairs? Uh, Madame Olenska exaggerates. I simply gave her a legal opinion as she asked me to. Ah, but in doing it, in doing it you were the unconscious instrument of—of—what word have we moderns for providence, Mr. Archer? cried the lady, tilting her head on one side and drooping her lids mysteriously. "'Little did you know that at that very moment I was being appealed to, being approached in fact from the other side of the Atlantic.' She glanced over her shoulder, as though fearful of being overheard, and then, drawing her chair near and raising a tiny ivory fan to her lips, breathed behind it. "'By the Count himself! My poor, mad, foolish Olenski, who asks only to take her back on her own terms!' "'Good God!' Archer exclaimed, springing up. "'You are horrified. Yes, of course, I understand. I don't defend poor Stanislas, though he has always called me his best friend. He does not defend himself. He casts himself at her feet, in my person!' She tapped her emaciated bosom. "'I have his letter here.' "'A letter? Has Madame Olenska seen it?' Archer stammered, his brain whirling with the shock of the announcement. The marchioness Manson shook her head softly time time i must have time i know my ellen haughty intractable shall i say just a shade unforgiving but good heavens to forgive is one thing to go back into that hell oh yes the marchioness acquiesced so she describes it my sensitive child but on the material side mr archer if one may stoop to consider such things do you know what she is giving up those roses there on the sofa Acres like them, under glass and in the open, in his matchless terraced gardens at Nice. Jewels, historic pearls, the Sobieski emeralds, sables—but she cares nothing for all these. Art and beauty, those she cares for, she lives for, as I always have, and those also surrounded her. Pictures, priceless furniture, music, brilliant conversation—ah, that, my dear young man, if you'll excuse me, is what you've no conception of here and she had it all, and the homage of the greatest. She tells me she is not thought handsome in New York. Good heavens! Her portrait has been painted nine times. The greatest artists in Europe have begged for the privilege. Are these things nothing? And the remorse of an adoring husband?" As the marchioness Manson rose to her climax, her face assumed an expression of ecstatic retrospection which would have moved Archer's mirth had he not been numb with amazement. He would have laughed if any had foretold to him that his first sight of poor Medora Manson would have been in the guise of a messenger of Satan, but he was in no mood for laughing now, and she seemed to him to come straight out of hell from which Ellen Olenska had just escaped. "'She knows nothing yet of all this?' he asked abruptly. Mrs. Manson laid a purple finger on her lips. "'Nothing, directly. But what does she suspect? Who can tell?' the truth is, Mr. Archer, I have been waiting to see you. From the moment I heard of the firm stand you had taken, and of your influence over her, I had hoped it might be possible to count on your support, to convince you. That she ought to go back. I would rather see her dead," cried the young man violently. "'Ah!' the Marchioness murmured, without visible resentment. For a while she sat in her armchair, opening and shutting the absurd ivory fan between her mittened fingers, but suddenly she lifted her head and listened. Here she comes, she said in a rapid whisper, and then, pointing to the bouquet on the sofa, am I to understand that you prefer that, Mr. Archer? After all, marriage is marriage, and my niece is still a wife. End of chapter Seventeen.